with us this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. We've been working our way through Hebrews um, over the last few weeks, and we'll spend um, at least the next uh, few months in Hebrews working our way just kind of chapter by chapter through this book, um, this letter from an unknown author to a specifically unknown audience in an unknown year. Um, We know it was written most likely before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed. It was for certainly, it was certainly written before 95 AD um, and written to a Jewish background, but believing church. So former Jews um, who had become Christians and what the, the struggle was, they were, they were dealing with persecution, with suffering, things were beginning to intensify and Judaism under Roman law was legal. Christianity wasn't. And so there was beginning to be some rumblings of, man, if we just kind of like step back into Judaism, life would be a whole lot easier if we just kind of set this Jesus um, Christian component aside. And so the author, his, his letter, his call, his intent is to say, hey, don't. Jesus is sufficient. He is better. And he just begins to walk through some really familiar things to their story. I'm saying, look, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And he's just going back to familiar history, shared history, stories, and elevating Jesus. And so this letter is not just for that audience. It's, it's for us as well. That we are tempted often to want to go back to things that feel more comfortable, things that feel more familiar, things that maybe have a little less call and demand on our life. That we're like, man, if I wasn't trying to follow Jesus... I, you know, I wouldn't have to think through all of these things so often. I wouldn't have to tell myself no. I wouldn't have to, right? I wouldn't have to wrestle with big things. There's this temptation for us as well um, to, to drift and to be prone to ask, is Jesus really sufficient? Is he really worth it? Is he really better than a life full of fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, right? Relationships, um, money, power influence, ease, comfort. Is Jesus really better than that? And so we're going to jump into chapter 4 as we continue our look at Hebrews. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so, so the author has said, look, Jesus is greater than the prophets because he's the son, right? He's greater than Moses because he, he brings us into rest. And he's going to continue this kind of line of argument and of reasoning as he continues to go back to, to both creation and to the Exodus, where God's people were removed from under the, ta- the taskmaster, Pharaoh, and rescued and sent to the promised land. That's, that's, that's the argument that he's continuing to draw their minds back to. And so we started this last week in chapter 3. Um, but, but ultimately, where we need to, maybe the question we need to answer first is, what is this rest that he keeps talking about? Like, what is, what is the rest? Because if I was to ask this question this morning, how many of you feel rested? There would not be a whole lot of hands go up, right? There might not be a single hand above the age of, like, 16, right, go up, Right? <laughs> That if you, like if you're in high school or up here, it's like yeah, I'm 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 not rested, I'm exhausted, all right. And if you were here last week and we had the baby dedication across the front, you're like I know those people aren't rested, right? That we that we just know that life doesn't seem to have a lot of rest for us, and yet chapter three of Hebrews and chapter four seem to be calling us to rest. And so what is the rest that he keeps referring to? And and first and foremost, it is salvation. Right? We're just, we're just cutting to the quick here. It is salvation, ultimately then, that we will have it eternally in heaven with him. And so what we find is that in scripture, we have a kind of an already and not yet theme again. That salvation and rest is ours currently in Christ because the work is finished and Jesus has made us his. But even though the power of sin has been broken and the penalty of sin has been paid for, we still are in the presence of sin in a broken world until the day where we die or until the day where Jesus splits the sky again, steps back into history and ends things, right? Right? And and that we are with him then forever. But rest is where we are meant to be. It's where we belong, and that is with God. And so if you think back to Genesis Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect harmony with God, right? And it was not inactivity because work was a part of it. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They were supposed to take dominion over creation. Work was a part of it, but work had not been spoiled yet by sin. And so they were meant to be with God and he was meant to be with them. And if we end scripture, right, in Revelation, in verse 20, or sorry, in chapter 21, verse 3, listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, right, with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so what we see is that the arc of Scripture, like the the story of Scripture, is telling one story that where mankind is meant to be is with God. 
That's why He created us, right? So that we would know and love and enjoy Him and give Him worship and praise. But because of sin and rebellion, right? Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And then the rest of us, right, from then on have been stained by sin, creating a a void, a separation. And so God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to raise up a people from you. And I'm going to make a nation. And people are going to see the way that I interact with you. And they're going to see my character and my glory. And they're going to come and worship. And you're going to have a land. Right? And that land is the land that Moses is taking the people as they're being rescued from Egypt in Exodus. They are headed to the promised land. The land that God had promised Abraham. Right? And yet along the way, they're arrogant and they grumble and they're disobedient and they're like, we had it better in Egypt. It's insane because they were slaves. Right? And, and they're headed now to the promised land. This, this place of physical rest, right? That, that, that they were meant for, that this first generation will not obtain because of their grumbling and of their complaints. And so what's going on here in Hebrews 3 and 4 is this, is that the author is telling us, look, the promised land was a place of rest, it was, it, but it was, wasn't a perfect place of rest. It was, a, it was an example, a symbol. Like they were really going to this place, but it was only a symbol of a greater rest that was coming for us, a spiritual rest. And so rest is a place to belong. It's a place of stability. It's a place where you're safe and you're secure, where you are known deeply, and where there is unbroken fellowship. It's what we see in the garden. It's what we see in eternity. And so the church, right, and in, in our salvation in Christ, we get glimpses and taste of this thing that we already are in possession of, that we have rest and we have hope and we have peace and we have salvation. And the world continues to kind of throw stuff at us and say, yeah, but maybe you don't, right? And we have to decide, do I believe this or do I not? Do I really have it? And so in its healthiest form, the church gets to be a place of rest while those who have found peace with God and soul rest with God, lock arms together and say, I know you, I see you, and you're safe here. You belong here. You're secure here. And it begins to be a taste of heaven, a taste of the kingdom on earth, right? And we see this glimpse of it. And yet the promise is there will be a day where we will know it in full. And so you're thinking this rest hopefully sounds good, that we're, that we're meant for this. But look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, because Joshua um, followed Moses, he took the second generation actually into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so the exodus, right, is this physical representation because sometimes as a people, right, we struggle with spiritual concepts, right? And so we can look back to the exodus and say, God physically rescued a people so that we would believe that he spiritually rescues the people. Right, that he took them away from a harsh taskmaster that they cannot escape from in Pharaoh. He takes us away from a harsh taskmaster, sin and Satan, which we cannot get away from apart from him. Right? And then that they feasted on manna and drank deeply from water in the desert that God miraculously provided so that we could feast on Jesus, right? And on his word and drink from an everlasting flow of water that comes from the Spirit. Right, that God is spiritually doing something for us that He physically did for them. 
That as they pass through the Red Sea, we talked about this last week, right? That we pass through baptism, not as a means of salvation, but as a reminder that God has rescued us by his word and his decree and in Jesus's faithfulness that we are buried, right? And as we raise again, we are walking out in Christ, right? That we are a new creation, that the exodus was a physical picture of what God was going to do spiritually for mankind. And so the promised land where they were trying to get, right, for us is with God. It is, it is the new heavens, the new earth. It's the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And so the, the exodus begins to give us handholds, right? Listen, as we, as we start this, because we want the, the warning to, to matter to us this morning, is that rest should be appealing, right? That rest should go, man soul is longing for that. I need that. Let me give you one quick example of what rest could look like for you spiritually. So, many of you have siblings, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, potentially children who are not believers, right? There's some relational connection in your life who do not yet know and love and trust Jesus. Or maybe it's a best friend, right? A coworker, someone that, that your soul hurts and longs for them. And so you pursue them and you point them to Jesus and you have conversations and you pray for them, right? If we don't believe that there is rest, if we don't believe that ultimately that God is the one who sustains it and gains it for us, right? Look at, look at verse 4. Or sorry, the end of verse three. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. That he is that he's done this and that he's offered good news, right? Then you can drive yourself insane, going, God, why haven't you yet done this? God, have I have I done something wrong? Was it that word I said? And then we we right we become paralyzed with fear, right? We we can do this even with other people's like physical safety physical health because we're not in control of it and we know that and so we, we go crazy wanting to be in control of something that we're not but here's the deal we point people to jesus and we pray for them and we open up the scriptures with them and we do everything in our power and then we go to sleep at night and we sleep soundly because god is sovereign and he is in control and god's arm is not too short to save and so we can rest in that that i can't save anyway it's not my winsomeness or my ability to talk you into something or my um, right, ability to, to defend an argument that then you're like, Whew, I'm intellectually convinced, Jesus, you're everything, right? That's not God saves. He opens eyes and woos hearts, and we get to play a role in that, but he's the one that does it. And so we can breathe, and we can rest, and we can exhale, right? Because it's not in our hands, so I hope rest is something that you long for, that you want, that we see it in Christ. Because where Hebrews 4 begins here is with a warning. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So here's the warning. Not everyone enters rest. Not everyone is going to get the rest. Right? And so he says, while the, while the opportunity for rest still stands and the door is still open because Jesus has yet to return. 
He says, listen, they received glorious news. And he's referring back to the Exodus. Because God showed up in miracles. He pulls his people out. They head through the wilderness, through the desert. He begins to continue to do miracles. And then he's revealing his character to them. Listen to just a couple quick passages from Exodus. This is Exodus um, 19, beginning in verse 3. When they're at Mount Sinai. Thus you will say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. This is God speaking to Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles wings and I brought you to myself. I rescued you basically. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Right? Like that he has rescued them, that they're going to belong to him, and that he has a purpose for them. This is good, good news. And then in Exodus 34, after they continue to grumble, to complain, to sin against God, he continues to reveal himself. Verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right? Like he's describing, like, I take care. Like, I forgive. Like, this is who I am. Good news would continue throughout the Old Testament. I'm only going to look um, at, at one more. This is Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Food. <laughs> Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. And so listen, the people of God, the people of Israel were consistently, constantly hearing good news of, here's who I am. I am gracious, and I am good, and I want you, and I want you to be my people, and I want to interact with you. It's this promise of rest over and over again that he says, listen, I'm offering you a feast that you don't have to pay for. You just get to come and indulge in because I'm going to do the work. I'm going to accomplish it for you. This is good news. Listen now. Verse 2. For good news came to us. He's speaking of Jesus. Just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Hearing and knowing the gospel is not sufficient for you to enter rest. Having a mental affirmation that that news exists is not sufficient. They saw God work. They heard good news. And in their disobedience and disbelief, they said it wasn't sufficient. And they did not enter rest. And so he is warning the church he's writing to and he's warning us. You can be deceived into thinking you have some mental affirmation, some knowledge. I could check off the box. Jesus, yes. Cross, yes. Rescue, yes. But if it's not faith, if it's not belief that this is 
valid and that it saves me and it rescues me and that it is sufficient. He's like, you will not enter rest. Listen, this is important for us to know that simple hearing is not sufficient. We, we are at risk of doing what Israel did, of letting unbelief lead us to not be in rest. We live in a culture where we often hear people say things like, well, at least they prayed a prayer when they were young. Well, at least they walked an aisle. Well, at least they got baptized. So even though they have nothing in their life that looks like Jesus, when they were seven, we got them. The author of Hebrews would say they're walking in disobedience and disbelief and they know truth and they're not going to enter rest. It's it's a hard warning for us. That that, that faith is faith that is persistent. It's faith that lasts. It's not that that's what saves us, but it's, it's, it's indicative of genuine faith. It's why Jesus then tells us in Matthew 7... Not everyone, in verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Right, we could continue. Did I not plant churches in your name? Did I not preach sermons in your name? Did I not tell, right? Like, we did things for you, so let us in. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's saying our spiritual activity is not indicative that we know Jesus. It's that, right, it's that we have faith that what he has done for us is, that, is what saves us. That we can't save ourselves. That it's the cross that brings about hope and peace and salvation. And the fact that you attend church every week and that you give money and that you go to gospel community and that you know some right answers, that's not what saves you. Jesus and his death and his resurrection saves us. And so he says, please don't be deceived by this because listen, we have an enemy who would love for you to be religious and miss Jesus. And so for some of us, our temptation is to run to sin and just be like really opposed to Jesus. For others, it's to be religious and miss Jesus. Because we can do some things in our strength, in our power, in our might. So he says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Would we not miss it simply because we've heard it? Would we respond to the rescue and respond in faith that Jesus, I can't save myself, but you have. And I trust that it is good and it's right and it is sufficient. Now listen, we have a bit of a paradox because if you go over to verse 11 now, he says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So he says, hey, you want rest? Let's enter the rest. The rest has been accomplished for you. And then he gets over to verse 11. Hey, so strive for it. And you're like, Hey, author, how do I strive for something that's already been accomplished for me? Right? How do I, how do, I do both of these? Because it sounds like you're telling me like to earn my salvation potentially. Listen, let's think about this for a second. Um, my, my kids, um, whom, whom I love, right? And who I tell that often, who because they're young, there haven't been these great big blow-ups in our relationship or anything yet, Right? 
Um, I'm hoping not ever, but right. But I'm just just saying they're young. So, right. So listen, I love them and I tell them that often and they will spend the rest of the decades of their life striving, wondering, like, do I really have dad's love? Like, can I lose it? Is it secure? And it won't be because I've ever given them reason to think that. There's just something in us that does, right? Right? So if I think about my marriage, we are married. We've had the vows. We've done that, right? If I stop doing everything that I promised to do, we're still married. Um, It's going to make things difficult, right? But I don't continue to do the things that I do so that we will be married. We're already married. I do them because I love her. And because I know her and because I've experienced her because I want to enjoy her, right? So that I continue to act like a married man, right? Not to keep us married, but because I am married. So what what the author is saying is, listen, my kids are my kids and nothing will change that. And they're still going to like fear and strive and worry a little bit. But the, the deed has already been done. That has already been accomplished. And so when he says, look, my works were finished from the foundation of the world. Jesus has done the work. It's done. It's accomplished. But if we know him, if we love him, if we enjoy him, if we've experienced him, then we want to walk with him. And so our striving is not falling off into disbelief. Our striving is going, I want more of you. Our striving is saying, look, the temptation of our hearts is to drift. Because if you've been in any sort of familial relationship, whether it's a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a kid, right? There are times where things are are richer and sweeter and better. And there are times where the distance is further. And much of that has to do with somebody's action or inaction. And so the striving isn't to be saved. The striving is to walk in the faith that has been given to us. Listen to how we've already heard these verses in Hebrews. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, pay close attention to what we have heard. Listen, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested. So he says, look, we can neglect it. We can drift from it. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Listen, therefore, holy brothers... Consider Jesus. Like he says, continue to consider. Continue to think about Jesus. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Right? Verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. All of this is written to the church, to believers, that would lead you to fall away from the living God. Verse 14 of chapter 3. We've already come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So here's what the author is saying. Listen, Jesus has saved you. Now continue to act like it. Right? Continue to persevere. Not that that is what saved you, but that you know saving faith in Jesus. Right? It should feel a little bit like, how can it both be? But Jesus has done it. And then Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we continue to lock on to belief to not drifting, to not wandering, to not hardening our heart. Because we are prone to do that. Listen, if you think you aren't, 
Israel were literal slaves for 400 years, beaten with a harsh taskmaster where they groaned out longing for rescue and relief. And within weeks, they're going, man, I want to go back to Pharaoh. When they had seen God do incredible miracles to rescue them, had provided for them, had taken care of them, and they're like, well, at least we knew there was a little bit of food every day. At least we knew there was some water. They wanted something familiar. And even though God was giving them everything they needed. And so if they were able to do that, then we need to know that our hearts can grumble and they can drift. And that we can fall into struggling to believe. What this is going to tell us is it's not a once and done. That we don't see a child saved or an adult saved and rescued and then say, okay, you're good. So whether you walk with Jesus or not, it's okay. Your salvation is secure. That if we walk with Jesus, it is indicative that he actually saved us. It's not once and done. It's, it's this fight. It's this wrestle. It's this struggle. Your salvation is secured by him, not by you. But your enjoyment and pursuit of Jesus reveals that he's done it. Listen, we don't automatically trust. Right? Like that we are continuing to grow in our belief in the promises of God. It's the reason that for many of you this morning, a Sabbath, a rest is foreign. And listen, chief sinner, okay? Like, I don't do good at that. But here's what the Sabbath does is it says this. You're not God. You can't do it all. You get tired. There's more, there's more to be done than you can do. And when you sleep and rest and pursue Jesus and let all the world go on around you, you're saying... Thank you that you're God and I'm not. Thank you that you're a God who never slumbers, who never tires, that you take care of this. Lord, forgive me for thinking I might be the Messiah occasionally. God, forgive me for thinking that I can save. You can. And so why does he say to do it regularly, weekly? Because we need that reminder regularly and weekly. That otherwise we get into the habit of just getting stuff done. Right? We're like, come on. And we start piling it up until we're crushed. We're like, there's no rest in Jesus. And because we're not trusting that promise. We're not walking in faith. We're not walking in a Sabbath. Church, we need one another to encourage, to remind, to hold up, to point. Because we are prone to forget and we're prone to drift. And to be said, hey, are you trusting Jesus in this? Do you remember what he's promised us? To get out of our own minds. And so one of the ways we attempt to do this at Redeemer is that if you're new here, we just ask you, not to, we ask you not to serve for six months. Because if you're asking to serve, here's the thing. Our tendency is to wrap up what we do for Jesus into our salvation. It's to wrap up what we do for Jesus into the fact that that's what's keeping us saved and keeping him liking us. But he loves you. Period. And so we do for him because he is good, but not because he needs it. Not because it keeps us saved. And so we want people to unwind some of that effort and some of that benefit, right? some of those things in their heart that might make them say, ah, like, if I don't do anything, maybe I'm not walking with Jesus. And to be reminded that Jesus has secured your salvation. Because we want to be healthy. We want people to walk trusting Jesus as sufficient. And then lastly, like, we need to see that our story... We are entering a story that's been going on for a long time. Hebrews is going to call us back to that a lot. 
right? That we need grounding because when suffering comes that we look back and go, oh, our story, our people have suffered. So like, and God has been faithful and he's provided for them, right? This is why this section ends with verses 12 and 13 about the word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What he's saying is this. The word of God will help you discern where you're not believing. The word of God will remind you that Jesus is sufficient. The word of God is going to show you that you believe or you don't believe that. And so are we going to the word? Because the word is going to say, hey, you don't actually believe this. You're telling everyone else you do and you're doing things that say you do, but you don't believe this. Because it's discerning the things that we hide from everyone else, right? Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I can fool you and you can fool me and we can, we can fool those closest to us. And sometimes we can even fool ourselves and yet the word of God, because it is divine and it is God breathed is alive and it will expose us. So are we in it? Are we, are we going to it? Are we allowing it to do what it can do through the power of the Spirit and God's breath in it? Or do we avoid it because we know that's what it does? And if we're avoiding it, then we're more likely to be deceived. And we're more likely to find satisfaction with things that shouldn't satisfy us in a fleeting manner. So he's saying, listen, if you want to enter rest, if you want to know that you're following him, are you trusting his word? Are you in his word? It will root out lies. It will root out deception. It will make us satisfied when the circumstances of our life should say that anything but satisfaction should be a part of what's going on. And it will give us insight into his character and to his promises that we can cling to. Listen, verse 15 of chapter 2. Jesus delivers those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He also tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to come, you who are weary, right? my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus is not Pharaoh. We have a harsh taskmaster, and sometimes it's ourselves. It's often, right, the fear of death, and it's sin, and it's Satan, and it's this world. And Jesus comes and says, look, I will break the fear of death, and I will give you peace with God, and I will lead you. And you can come and rest and not be weary any longer. And we will see that and it will be a balm, a salve to our soul. And then quickly we pick up and we start trying to work real hard again. But here's the good news and here's where we're going to finish. The work has been accomplished. It's done. It is finished. Through Jesus' perfect life, through his obedient death and through his resurrection. So what he says is come and enjoy. Come be satisfied. Come be part of the family. He does not say work the program. Right? He doesn't say, do these things, jump through these hoops. He says, know me, trust me, follow me. Right? And his word continues to guide us. His spirit continues to guide us to lift our eyes, to look at Jesus, to see the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is enough. And he will satisfy 
So this morning, our call is this. Would you hear his voice and respond? Right? That he says, it's today. Respond today. Because the, the door is still open. There will be a day where the door will be closed and rest will no longer be offered. And so we want to hear his voice and respond to it. We want believer and unbeliever to lift our chins and to look at the author of Hebrews as he holds up Jesus. That we would say, what I would want is to spend time with him. Right? Does your heart long to say, yeah, I want more of Jesus. I want to sit at a table with him. I want him because I'm safe and I'm secure and I'm, and I'm, I'm known with him. And if you don't think and feel those things, then you're not looking at Jesus, right? You're not seeing him clearly because our hearts should long for more of him. And he offers it. So listen, the band is going to come back up. We're going to have an opportunity to worship our king who is alive and well and on his throne, who is speaking and calling and wooing this morning. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, there'll be some folks in the back of the room. You're welcome at any point to go back and and visit and pray with them. Also, this morning, the Lord's Supper is set up. And so at any point during the next three songs, you can get up as an individual, as with friends, with family, and take the cup and take the bread. The table is meant for believers. It's meant for those who already trust that Jesus is their salvation, that he has secured it through the cross, through his resurrection. So you, you take that reminding yourself the work is done. You don't have to gain anything. You don't have to earn anything this morning. It has been accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. And when we worship and celebrate the rest that is offered and the rest that is to come. Jesus, would you, would you reveal yourself this morning? Father, for those who, are, who know you but are exhausted, who are not walking in rest, would they begin to look to see what they're not believing and what they're not trusting about you? God, would you give us the wisdom we need to discern how to live with striving and with energy and with faithfulness and obedience and yet trusting in your rest? That both of those are true. Um, They're just impacted and disguised sometimes by the brokenness of the world. Father, would you reveal yourself to the both believers and unbelievers here this morning that you would receive honor, praise, and glory that we would rest in and trust you.